Let me invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to finish chapter 12 this morning, and um, there's some some really important things here. So let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 25 through, uh, through the end, through 29. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time, His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for for speaking to us, for revealing Jesus to us. And we pray that we would, in response to his revelation, worship you with reverence and awe. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, there's uh, a, a lot here and, and uh, some really wonderful things to look at, but uh, I do want to pay attention to the fact that we're receiving yet another uh, warning uh, from heaven. Uh, this is maybe the f- fifth or sixth, depending on how you count, time that Hebrews warns us, uh, and, and that's something we should pay attention to, Right? But then you get to verse 28, and there's this beautiful promise about how we have received something that's invaluable, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, something permanent, immovable, and eternal, and that is ours. That is what we have received as our inheritance, and that's a glorious thing. We want to talk more about that. Then you get to the end of chapter 12, and there's this interesting description of God as a consuming fire, which is you know, a good topic, I suppose, to cover on a day when it's 16 degrees outside. Um, But have you ever thought of God as a consuming fire? And what does that mean? What implications uh, does that have for us? So uh, let's go ahead and jump in. And and, um, I know we've we've looked at some of the warning passages before, so uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to dwell on these except just to notice and, and ask the question, like, who is speaking? In verse 25, it says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So we want to know who is speaking. And then we also need to ask ourselves, well, who is he speaking to? For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And so we get the answer to our question, we are the ones being warned. And the one who is warning us is the one who speaks from heaven. It's, it's Jesus, right? So people... Um, I don't know kind of what your familiarity is with, with church-going people and, you know, sort of the, the, the Christian community, but it's not uncommon in my experience to, to feel like people sort of have the often wrong impression uh, that the warnings of the Bible are, are all targeting like the unbelievers uh, and, and calling them to abandon their, their secularism and to embrace Christianity, right? So 
It is true that some warnings in the Bible are speaking to those who you know, disregard God and you know, don't pay Him any mind. But the, actually, the majority of the warnings in the Bible are targeting people just like you and I who go to church regularly, who, who actually you know, think of God and, and, and think that we need to live in light of His reality, etc. But what Hebrews is doing is it's not warning secular people about the, the perils uh, of their worldview, even though those perils are real. Um, instead, what's going on here is it's, it's, it's written for religious people, and it's written for those who, as Kyle was pointing out last week, who are really at the foot of, of Mount Sinai, right? Um, and, and who have come and, and, and now gathered at Zion, who, who have joined the festal angel gathering, who are gathering together with the, the assembly of the firstborn, and who are coming to Jesus, the firstborn of a new covenant, and calling us not to be distracted from him. Uh, don't wander off the path, so to speak. We began the whole study in Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 1, by being reminded that long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. We're the audience, and Jesus is the one who's speaking. And he was appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the one who created all things, and as this passage reminds us, he is the one who will shake all things. That day is coming when what is permanent versus what is temporary is going to be revealed. And there is going to be a, a revelation, an apocalypse, an unveiling. Uh, uh, you know, there won't be any question anymore of what is real, what is true, and what is eternal versus what is false and what is just temporary and, and what was not worth living for as opposed to what is worth living for. And so um, these warnings in Hebrews function a lot like how Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount. Again, it's, you know, people have this impression that, oh, well, Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He must have been gathering all the people who, who weren't very religious or very spiritual saying, hey, you should be religious and spiritual. You know, you should pray. You should, you should fast. You should give. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount was all about at all. He was speaking to all the people who were going to synagogue each Sunday or Saturday in that case, and, you know, they were, they were gathering and they were, you know, trying to keep the law, et cetera. And then he was pointing out, hey, when you pray, assuming that they're praying, don't be like the people who pray and you know, pray in order to get a, a lot of people that think that they're super spiritually. Or when you give, don't be like the people that give in order to get a lot of attention for themselves. Or when you fast, don't be like the people who disfigure themselves and want everybody to know that they're fasting, right? So when he gets to the end of the sermon, he talks about two houses. And he says, here's two houses, and one's built on sand, and one's built on rock. And the rains came and the storms you know, blew and the one house that was built on the sand fell and the house that was built on the rock stood. The houses looked identical. The audience looked identical. The difference was what was the foundation for their lives. What was temporary? What, who's, who were building their lives on temporary, shakable things? And who was building their lives on unshakable things, right? That's really the lesson of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the role of these warnings um, that we receive in Hebrews. So, so let me jump to verse 27, which talks about how this, 
this period is going to come, the, the, the end days, you know, the final uh, end of history, when God's going to reveal what's temporary and what's eternal, um, what's, what's shake, what is shakable and what is unshakable. And in verse 27, the author says, yet, the phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken uh, may remain. Now, <clears throat> just to kind of give us an idea of what's being talked about, here on the front of your bulletin is a side-by-side -side picture that, uh, that, that we uh, wanted to show you, and I've got the, the slide up here so you can see it in color, but uh, not, it's, it doesn't end up being every single October, but frequently we're, we're participating in Waynesboro's Fall Foliage Art Show, and, um, and you'll see all kinds of vendors if you've ever been down there. Uh, it's a great art show, and you can see beautiful paintings, beautiful drawings, and then you get um, sculpt sculptors who, who have, you know, sculpture in stone or in wood or even in metal, right? And then you've got um, craftspeople who are working in ceramics and jewelry and all these different things. So, you know, a, a whole variety of different media that people are using uh, creatively and artistically. And, um, and we've been really uh, had a lot of fun, and it's been a great opportunity for us to uh, when the weather's good, you know, we'll go out and we'll do chalk drawings on, on the, the brick pavement right there at the corner of Wayne and Main. Uh, and we do it in the same spirit as, uh, as you find over in, in Europe. Um, they call them the Madonari uh, because they originated in Italy and they would be in the piazzas uh, in the local villages, you know, in front of the church, the main church in the town or whatever. And uh, these, these artists would draw in pastels and they would do depictions of the Madonna and child, the Madonari. And they'd put out their hat and people would throw a coin in and, you know, just appreciate the art and so on. So the Madonari do religious work and, um, you know, and, it's, and it's sort of like performance art in a sense. People come and they want to see what you're drawing and, and, it, and then you get into some interesting conversations. So we do like religious art too. This is the rich young ruler, a painting that George Watts did in the 19th century uh, and I did a copy of it, you know, in the bricks. And, and people come by and they're like, oh, that's kind of cool. What are you drawing? And tell me about it. And, and immediately we're, we're having a conversation about a story that Jesus told in the Bible. And, and there's no weirdness. There's no, like, you religious kook. You know, what are you talking about? They're asking the questions. They want to know. They're curious. And, you know, God willing, we can do this again this October. But anyway, the other thing that we inevitably will talk about is they'll, they're so kind and thoughtful, they'll, 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 they'll look for a, a polite way to interject and, and to remind me, don't you know what you're doing here? It, when the, the next rain comes, it's all going to wash away. And I go, <laughs> no, no, you're breaking my heart. And I go, of course it is. Of course it's going to wash away. And they go, but doesn't that bother you? And I'm like, well, you know, it's sort of sad, but it's okay, I get it. It's kind of the point. Everything's ephemeral. Like that's the point. Everything is temporary. And then I point to the, 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 the art booth where the, the guy that's doing uh, metal sculpture has his stuff. Um, and then I point to the ceramics artist. And then I point to the, you know, the stone sculptor. And I'm like, look, depending on your time horizon, that's all going to wash away. And they go, oh, deep. <laughs> and it is true. 
And so what Hebrews is telling us is, is um, build, build your life on what's unshakable. And resist the, this, the, the, the entropy of the world where everything's going to decay, everything's going to dissolve, it's going to fall apart, and, and, and it's hard. It's hard for us to remember this. We need these reminders, even, even warnings, right, to not live for shakeable things, um, things like stuff, like our stuff. Did you know that among all of the offices of Jesus, all the roles that he played, prophet, priest, and king, do you know that he had another role as wealth manager? And in the Sermon on the Mount, or you know, maybe it's not the Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke 12, he said, sell your possessions and give to the needy and provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, uh, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, right? So put your treasure in what is unshakable, you know? Put your, put your treasure in heaven. Make sure that that's where you're investing, you know, your true wealth, your true worth. Um, and we can look at some other things that are shakable, that are temporary, that, are, that will dissolve and, you know, um, are not permanent. Things like our earthly reputations. How many of us are spending a lot of time and a lot of energy, whether it's in person or on, online, you know, in your media or whatever, just trying to maintain the image, trying to maintain the veneer, make sure that everybody loves us admires us, thinks that what we do is art, you know, like we just never make any mistakes and, and you know, sort of living this life where we want people to want to live like us. Uh, and, and that's exhausting. Uh, it's not only exhausting, it, 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 it's crushing when you, when you fail, when inevitably people's opinions of us will, will turn and we're going to disappoint them because we're human and they're human and you get two humans together, it's messy. And we're going to disappoint them. And so when our best efforts fail, we're crushed, right? We're, we're just defeated. And then there's, there's, there's rare people who seem to just do nothing but win. And everybody admires them. Everybody respects them. Their reputation's through the roof. And they're insufferable because of it. And instead, you know, maybe what we ought to be living for is a reputation that is unshakable. A reputation not on earth, but in heaven. A reputation before God. What is, instead of worrying about what people think of us, we should be thinking and worrying about what does God think of us? And did you know that the word reputation has the same root as the, our $5 theological word that we throw around here sometimes called imputation? And, and that's really a, at the heart of the gospel because what Jesus did on the cross was he took our sin upon himself and he transfers his goodness and rightness, his righteousness to us. And the theologians describe that as a double imputation. The imputation of our sin to Jesus. And the imputation of Jesus' righteousness to us. And we receive that. We believe that. And he grants those things to us as a gift. And so because his righteousness is imputed to us, we have a reputation in heaven that heaven looks at us the same way that it looks at the sun. As faultless, as beautiful, as praiseworthy, 
not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done. And so that's our reputation in heaven that we ought to be living for and living in light of instead of the the shakable, fragile, dissolvable reputation of what the earth thinks of us and what people think of us. Well, you know, a couple more things just to consider real quick. What about marriage? Did you know that marriage is temporary, earthly marriages? Your marriage on earth is temporary. Jesus said this. He said in Matthew 22 that in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are they given in marriage. And and what this tells us is that we ought not to be um, replacing our true marriage in heaven, which is between the church as the bride and Jesus as the groom. Um, Live in light of that. Don't replace that. Those of us who are married, we've got to keep in mind that our marriage is a means to primarily glorify God and to love our neighbor who also happens to be our spouse. And instead, we, we, we kind of get wrapped around the axle and we forget this is temporary. And we make an idol out of our marriages because we you know, give our spouse the power to either bless us or to curse us. And only God has that power. Our job is to love our spouse, to serve our spouse for the sake of Jesus. And, you know, we do our best along those lines. And, and so to you who are married, don't make an idol out of your marriage. And to you who are not married, don't make an idol out of marriage. It is not the end-all, be-all. We are all called as the bride of Christ to, to focus on what is unshakable, the eternal uh, pledge and covenant that we have uh, with, with Jesus So I've stepped on your toes with marriage. Let me step on your toes with something else. Do you know that politics is temporary? There's not one single government on this planet that is eternal. No kingdom was going to last forever. You know, you look at Rome, you look at Babylon, you look at Assyria, you look at Persia, all of those kingdoms dissolved. They were shaken. They were superpowers, and they're no more. And what that tells us is that no earthly kingdom or government that's you know, in existence today is going to endure forever. And that means not even England, not Russia, not China, not even the USA, not even Israel. Now, sure, there's going to be political entities that are in existence whenever Jesus comes back. And that, that could be next week. We, we don't know when. But when he comes, whenever, whenever he comes, what's going to happen is that every political entity, every earthly kingdom is going to dissolve. It's going to be shaken. There is only going to be one kingdom remaining. Do you know what kingdom that is? It's the unshakable kingdom of God. It's the only government that will exist forever. And so we have, to, we have to live in light of what's real and what's eternal. And, and I'm not saying that we don't seek the peace and the prosperity of our country, of the USA or wherever you know, every country people live in, but, it, but we certainly ought not to exalt it. Does that make sense? Lastly, just thinking about temporary things, shakable things, do you know that sin is temporary? It's shakable. And, and apart from just the reality that anything that we do that offends God offends God, like, okay, that's reason enough to, to turn from sin, but look, why, why, do, why do we sin? Well, because we think it's going to make us happy. It's somehow going to satisfy us. It's going to give us some kind of pleasurable result if we do this thing, even though we know God says don't do it. But do you know that 
apart from offending God, like even just thinking about the economics of, of, of sin, like it's temporary. And isn't it sad that we would be throwing away eternal happiness, that someone would, would give their lives over to sin and, and, and forfeit eternal happiness when that whatever that is they're pursuing is temporary. So this whole language of, of shaking and, and what is um, unshakable actually doesn't originate with Hebrews. It's like so many other places in Hebrews that is borrowing from the Old Testament. Uh, and this, this language is borrowed from the prophet Haggai. And in chapter 2, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And so what the prophets were telling God's people, what Jesus was telling this, uh, and what we are hearing 2,000 years later is play the long game, have an eternal perspective, and build our lives on what is unshakable. The, the things that, that cannot be shaken are things like God's throne. Um, Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then when you sort of do a, an inventory of what is unshakable, we, we find things like God's beauty, and God's glory. It's why you know, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever because that is eternal. Um, things like, like pursuing the blessing of, of our neighbor. Jesus would say things like, if you give just a cup of cold water to somebody in my name, that's going to be remembered in heaven, right? That's an eternal deed that has eternal consequences. To live a life that's committed to, to blessing our neighbor, right? To being kind and to serving them. And, and then when you think about what's eternal, what else? Well, there's no kingdom, no government that's going to last, no, no organization, no company, no, no uh, nothing on this planet is going to last forever except for one organization. And that's this organization. The church. The, the manifestation of his invisible kingdom. We, we are called to make his invisible kingdom visible. And so in that light, the church is going to last forever. The church is, the, the, uh, is called to reveal to the world, to be a window to the world of what his kingdom looks like. We're the people who God has gathered through time and through space, who pray the way we pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the church is. People who pray that way. We want his kingdom to come. We're the, we're the bride. We're the people who have received this kingdom. And, and furthermore, we know something else, that it's not just the church that's eternal, but all, all people are immortal. Like, I know we have mortal bodies, but, but he's given us immortal souls. And every person, as, as we heard earlier, is made in the image of God. And we ought to take that very seriously. That's a, that's a sobering thought. That every single person that we deal with is, is immortal, has an immortal soul, and is going to stand before the Lord to be, to be judged by God. And so we want to live lives that are, that are pushing them toward Jesus so that, that that day of judgment is not a day of destruction, but a day of glorification. And so in that light, you know, that's why we celebrate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, because every human being is an image bearer of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is why children who are still in the womb are, are not disposable. They're image bearers. This is why 
people who, who have different abilities and disabilities are, are valuable, despite whatever things they you know, struggle to do. And this is why like, our worth is not measured by our, our productivity on earth, but on the value that being image bearers of God gives us, our, our value in heaven. And so it's in that light that we celebrate sanctity of human life. It's in that light that, you know, last week, we, it's a good thing to recognize, you know, a birthday like Martin Luther King Jr.'s. It's a good thing to, 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 to agree and see that, wow, that dream that he talked about really was a reflection of what we see in Revelation, of how John looked and he beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what that tells us is that people who have different customs and different cultures and languages and skin colors are worth embracing instead of rejecting, are, are, are worth our curiosity instead of our suspicion. Right? And, and this is really just a reflection of the fact that around that throne and for eternity to come, we're going to be celebrating that distinctiveness, you know, and so let's acknowledge that right now. So there's things that are temporary, right, and, and there's things that are eternal, and we want to live life in light of that. We, we want to, I don't know if you still have any of these sitting around after Christmas. Um, we put all ours away, and thanks, thank you, Kyle and Jenny, for digging this out, because I didn't have my, any snow globes, but snow globes are fun, and you shake them, and the, and the snow swirls around, and they're, and they're pretty, right? What if, if our life is a snow globe, how often does yours get shaken around, right? We're no strangers to stress and to things being disorganized and chaotic and crazy, and we feel like, man, it's just always swirling. How often does everything around you get sent swirling and spiraling? I mean, these are fun because, well, yeah, the snow's spiraling, but there's something stable in the middle of it, you know, a bird on a gift or a, or a church building or, you know, some tourist attraction that you visited and you bought one of these, right? There's something stable in it. What if your life has nothing in the center, nothing stable? All it does is swirl. What Hebrews is promising us is that Jesus offers us this unshakable foundation for our lives. He offers us his kingdom. And when we receive that kingdom, we are received into that kingdom. We become part of what is unshakable in the snow globe, at the center of it, right? We're anchored to that. We become part of the church, something unshakable. We become God's bride, something unshakable. We become his people, something unshakable. Even though, of course, the world's spiraling around us. That's why we sang earlier, like the flame cannot hurt you. I only design your dross to consume, your gold to refine. And so as we think about that idea of the flame cannot hurt you, let's, let's look at that consuming fire language at the end. Therefore, let us be grateful in verse 28, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
Um, I hope that gets your attention. It, it gets my attention. It's one of these places in the Bible where we're reminded what God is like. And, and we hear multiple descriptions of God throughout Scripture, and, and you can take an inventory and look at the fact that God, the Bible says that God is love. It says that he's, he's merciful and gracious. It says that he is our helper. The Bible says that he is our refuge and strength. He is our strong tower. He is our salvation. He is our light, right? Those are all comforting things. And then it moves into some areas that we kind of go, well, I don't, what is that? You know, and how does that relate to me? Because then it starts to say things like, God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. Like, as holy as can be. Um, completely pure. And then we'll say things like, God is the God of gods and Lord of lords and is highly exalted and who can come near him, right? And then you come to things like, he's a consuming fire. How do you, how do you, how do you take comfort in a consuming fire? Um, again, just as, as Hebrews is prone to do, we're borrowing from the Old Testament, this time from Deuteronomy 4, where we're, we're told, take care, right? It's a warning. Lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Don't make an idol, right? Don't build your life on something temporary. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And we've seen that uh, imagery before uh, as related to God. We saw it at the burning bush with Moses. Uh, we saw it in the, the pillar of fire as it led Israel through the wilderness. We, we saw it on, on Mount Sinai, you know, in Exodus as the people of God were receiving the law. And God said, don't let anybody come near. And at the same time, you sort of saw it at Pentecost and the, the, the flames of fire came to rest on the apostles and the disciples as they received the Holy Spirit. And you saw it as the angel brought the atoning fire of God to, to Isaiah's lips um, as he was an unclean person among a people of unclean lips. And, and so again and again, you see this language of fire that is cleansing, a description of God's activity. And it reminds us of what happens in Leviticus 9. The fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted, and they fell on their faces. This burnt offering, you know, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament that point to the final true sacrifice that Jesus meant for us. That he would die on a cross to take our sins away. That he, although it wasn't a burnt offering, right? But, but in, that, in that category of an atoning sacrifice, he was consumed so that you and I would not be. He took our place so that we can build our lives on the foundation of what he has done for us. So our God is a consuming fire, and that means that he's all these things, but there's also, you know, if he's this, then it also means that he's not these other things. And the Bible will say things like in Numbers, that God is not man, that he should lie or change his mind. And in Galatians, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, he will also reap. And then earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 6, we were reminded that God is not unjust. And so when we hear that God is a consuming fire, what is, it, what is it also telling us? Consuming fire. God is, God is like fire. 
God is something to, to handle carefully. And, and in that sense, God is not safe, right? I mean, isn't this the, we'll borrow from Lewis's uh, dialogue between uh, Lucy and Mr. Beaver, right? And, and, and Lucy hears about Aslan, the lion, and she's nervous and she's anxious. He says, wait a minute, a lion, That's, that doesn't sound very safe. What am I going to do? Is he, is he quite safe? And she wants reassurance from Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver just has to shoot straight with her and says, are you kidding, girl? He's not safe. He's the king, but he's good. He's good, right? Now, let me let me just ask you, fill in the blank for me. What's another way of saying that something's not safe? Like he's not a tame lion, right? He's not safe. So what's another way of saying that something's not safe? It's, fill in the blank, it's dangerous. When's the last time you thought that God was dangerous. Like, handle with care. Be careful. Fire's good, right? But you have to respect the fire. You have to, to handle it with care. You don't play with fire. And we don't play with God. He's good, don't get me wrong. But we don't play with Him. Are we playing with God? No. The whole point of the warnings in the Hebrews is to say God is not like this. You could throw on another log onto the fire. God is not a universalist. Grace is not universalism. And this means that there is this real call. Jesus extends a genuine call to the, to the whole world, come. Come and build your life on the, the sure foundation that is the gospel, on his work on our behalf. And don't go continuing to live life imagining that you, know, you can invest and build your life on unshakable things and everything's going to be okay. It will not be okay. Don't play with fire. Don't imagine that we can receive this unshakable kingdom, right, for those of us who have said yes to him, and then go on and, and pretend like, oh, well, you know, that doesn't really matter anymore. I'm just going to give my life to shakable things. Don't play with fire. Verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This, this is uh, showing us like when we... When we take to heart the reality of who God is, he's holy, he's a consuming fire, like that gives us pause. Like we realize, oh my goodness, the, the holy, eternal God of the universe has come to me, he's given his son and has loved me so that I could receive his unshakable kingdom and that ought to do something in our hearts. When's the last time we felt the weight of his glory? When's the last time we, we came to him with thanksgiving, genuine thanksgiving for, oh my goodness, this kingdom that I did not deserve and that you've given to me freely. Thank you. When's the last time we came to him with reverence and awe of the God who was a consuming fire who at the same time says, draw near. I want to be the first to confess that is not where I live all the time. 
And I just want to let all of us know and remind all of us, there's, there's one more posture of approach that is acceptable to God. And it's the posture that recognizes, you know what, I, I'm not there all the time. I'm not feeling the awe. I'm not feeling the fear. I'm not feeling the thanksgiving. I'm just maybe numb. And the other posture that's acceptable before our God who is a consuming fire is repentance. Coming to God and saying, I don't, I don't want a numb heart. I don't want to stay in that place. I want to be like the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus with Jesus and they, they finished that conversation and they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us? And we can come to him and ask him to melt our heart of stone, to, to turn us from our distractions, and to turn us from our indifference, and to turn us from our sin so that our hearts might burn again. That passage in Deuteronomy 4 that talked about God as a consuming fire, here's how it ends. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we're mindful you are a consuming fire. And we acknowledge there are times when we play with that fire. And we repent of that. And we turn from that. And we pray that you would fill us anew and and help our hearts to burn within us again and fill us with reverence and awe and gratitude for receiving this unshakable kingdom. Please, Jesus, help us, forgive us, renew us, lift us, and send us out as men and women and children who have this unshakable hope, whose lives are, yeah, there's stuff swirling around us, but we are, are, are living on solid ground. Lord, I pray that the people that we interact with as we're sent out of here would, would see that, that you would open our lips so that our mouths might declare the praises of him who loved us and who gave himself for us and who gives us something unshakable to put our hope in. In his name we pray, amen.